it reminds me of that moment when I was told I was applying for you know, uh, what major would I pick? And they told me that you have no future in politics at Saudi. Just pick social enterprise, you can still do good. But there's a reason why you have this calling and desire because as soon as I finished my master's, they were looking for youth to represent the kingdom and who actually studied that, they measured in that. <laughs> so really, you know, don't pick your choices today based on just what opportunities are valid in front of you today, but there's actually time until you can, for things to change, predict, you know, there's, there's ways to look forward. There's every sure. single person can contribute and look forward in a specific way. This is the 966. This is the 966 episode 50. Richard, 50. look at us. 50, look at us. <laughs> how, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks. Um, we've got a great show today. As always, we've got a great interview coming up with Raghad Fatadin. Just a really great conversation with her. Before we get to that, we'll talk a little bit about oil prices. Um, we've got a lot to get to in Yella today, but we will be quick here because we want to get to that interview with Raghad. She's just fantastic. Before we do that, uh, wherever you're getting this podcast, it does help us out a lot if you subscribe to it, either on YouTube or uh, Apple Podcasts. Really, we're on, Richard, over 20 podcasting platforms now. So wherever you are listening to this, if you subscribe to it, it helps us out a lot. We would really appreciate it. Richard, let's kick off the 50th here. What's your one big thing? Uh, before that, it's a fun story how we got connected with Rod and um and uh, lucky us, she's incredibly dynamic, incredibly capable, and and she's off to uh, Indonesia uh, in July for her Y20 delegate as well as doing wonderful work with Pepsi. So uh, PepsiCo over there. So a great interview. Uh, my one big thing: <clears throat> this year's Hajj season begins July 7th, and there's much to be excited about. After severely limiting the number of pilgrims allowed in 2020 and 2021, Saudi Arabia will raise the number this year to 1 million. While this is only 50, roughly 50% of the 1.9 to 3.2 million pilgrims who visited pre-pandemic, it's a first step back. Uh, this Hajj season is notable for other reasons as well. On June 6th, just 25 days before the Hajj uh, is to begin, the Saudi Ministry of Hajj and Umrah announced that all potential pilgrims from the West must apply through a new pl platform, Mutawaf. Uh, so for the first time ever, Muslims from 57 Western countries needed to participate in a lottery in order to perform the pilgrimage. Um, Hajj lotteries are, are commonplace in Muslim majority states, uh, and their national quotas of just a basically about a thousand pilgrims per million people are, are the norm. And I think that's been applied to the Western now Western countries as well. Um, and again, in these Muslim majority countries, many people wait years to perform the pilgrimage. But again, this is new for Western Muslims, Muslims from quite, uh, Western countries. Uh, the Matawaf website was established for a number of reasons um, to manage health concerns, to combat fraud, to control rising costs and to simplify and modernize the Hajj and Umrah process for pilgrims. <clears throat> the, the new Matawaf system essentially eliminates scores of travel agencies and middlemen based in Western countries that have for, for 40 years at least served the function of arranging travel and lodging for pilgrims. Um, and in fact, the name Matawaf 
was taken from the thousands of Matawas who have traditionally delivered transportation tents and other services to overseas companies organizing Hajj on behalf of Western Muslims. Um, these Mutawas, in turn, work with Munazams who deal with smaller groups, 150 to 450 pilgrims. It is unclear now how these traditional Mutawas and Munazams and their experience and expertise fit into the new Hajj and Umrah experience. The best of these organizers, the Mutawas and Munazams, have, have local knowledge and, and uh, a specific understanding of customers' needs, you know, cultural, religious, and linguistic needs, as well as particularities of the Saudi setting. So this is a big swing by the Ministry of Hajj and Umrah. The motivations are clear and consistent with Saudi Arabia's efforts to streamline, optimize, and, and make more efficient all aspects of its economy. And Hajj and Umrah, as we know, Lucian, are a big part of its economy, contributing up to $8 billion in a normal year. You know, it hasn't been a normal year for, for the last three, and it won't be normal this year, but going in the past. Um, <clears throat> not surprisingly, the Matawaf website crashed on its first day due to so many visitors. And also there's been some confusion for pilgrims and, and travel agencies that had already booked and paid for flight and lodging arrangements. Um, so this first go-round is likely to result in some unhappy pilgrims. Uh, going forward, I would anticipate that, uh, one, the Matao system is here, the new Matao system is here to say, and two, like everything associated with Vision 2030, it will have some growing pains. It will need to be refined, adapted, and hopefully it'll be perfected over time. Talk about some disruptive technology. I mean, this is a huge <laughs> rollout. And um, Richard, we mentioned this on a previous episode as well. A lot of times when there's a huge rollout and millions of people going to visit a website all at once, no matter how quickly you can scale your cloud yeah. server platform, um, inevitably uh, crashes happen. But as you said, and I think is a really good point, this is a this is a, a, not just a step in the right direction, it's a leap forward in the right direction for Saudi Arabia. And this is going to make some of these travel agents and some of these arrangers in foreign countries uh, not happy, of course. Um, but in the end, it's a service to future pilgrims. And I think that's really what the aim is, as well as to sort of modernize everything uh, in Saudi Arabia and, and make it tech forward. Very cool story here. Um, it will be interesting to see how they improve it in future years and for future iterations. But um, I mean, you saw this re Richard, the Tawakana app for Saudi Arabia just won a, an award for the UN. When they rolled out Tawakana, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people would have said this thing is going to be so wildly successful that it is going to win a award from the United Nations and, you know, stuck with it and has really earned its own reputation. So this is interesting. And uh, this uh, this will be a tough sort of year of growing pains for this app. But uh, I mean, as you said, the, it's it's a good application. Well, insofar as we know, and, 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 you know, I think obviously the motivation is there and there's reasons for it, but the, the implementation, we always talk about implementation is everything. And uh, when you do it late in the game, which they did June 9th, um, you know, you, 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 you can expect some difficulties. So hopefully the challenges won't be overwhelming and that won't be too, too widespread. And, and um, you know, it can be refined going forward because certainly it, it could you know, if properly developed and applied, it could simplify things for West Muslims in Western countries. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, good <clears throat> luck to them. I mean, Richard, you only need to, you only need to look at the first episode of the nine six six, and now the fiftieth to see 
how just launching something can be great <laughs> and then how much better it can get over time. So uh, really cool to see. And I imagine it's like anything, most of, you know, a lot of it's, a lot of the improvements going on behind the scenes. Hopefully, <laughs> there's significant improvement at, at the front end of the store, but you know, behind the scenes, oh my goodness. Richard, uh, my one big thing this week, um, and I'll try to get through this quickly, um, although I've, it's gonna be, it's quite a lot here, but I really wanna discuss with you oil markets here ahead of President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi-led OPEC plus group of oil producers, which includes Russia, said on Thursday it would stick to its planned oil output hikes in August. The increase in production levels for August match with the broader alliance agreed on for July, which is for OPEC plus countries collectively raising their output production by 600, roughly 650,000 barrels a day. Uh, this is according to the Wall Street Journal reporting today. Before this, OPEC plus rolled out monthly increases of 430,000 barrels a day in oil production that the alliance agreed to last year as part of a plan to raise output to pre-pandemic levels. But in early June, OPEC plus announced a bigger than expected production increase plan for July and August. And so what they've done here this week is really push off a debate on policy from September onwards. Prices have risen on tight global supplies and worries that the group has little ability to pump more crude. And that's sort of what uh, came to the fore this week, Richard. France's President Emmanuel Macron reportedly told President Biden that there wasn't a lot of spare capacity left from Gulf producers. This got picked up in Reuters and sort of led to a frenzy of reporters and analysts online to sort of look at just how much spare production Saudi Arabia has ahead of this visit. And there's really just, well, all I want to do here is just kind of direct everybody to an awesome piece in Bloomberg. It was syndicated as many Bloomberg items are in the Washington Post uh, by one of the best reporters on the oil markets out there, Javier Blas, just really good. But he sort of breaks down uh, Saudi Arabia's spare production capacity, how much Saudi Arabia could turn up the taps and sustain that level of production. Uh, this is all from this piece. Uh, just going to read a couple parts here, and then I want uh, Richard to jump in here. Um, Aramco claims it can sustainably pump 12 million barrels a day, well above the kingdom's OPEC plus August target of 11 million barrels, Bloss writes. But apart from a few top company executives and a handful of Saudi royals, no one knows for sure whether Aramco can deliver. The truth will emerge, he writes, in the next few weeks. Um, but essentially, uh, Bloss cites some company insiders here that saying that Aramco can reach 12 million barrels a day within 30 days and sustain that level for 90 days, but for how long beyond that is unknown. And Saudi Aramco is investing to expand its production capacity, but it won't really get there until 2024. Um, and then meanwhile today, President Biden said that he will not even directly ask Saudi Arabia's leaders to increase oil production when he visits. Um, he said, quote, that's not the purpose of this trip. Uh, he said this at a conference in Madrid. So long winding road here, trying to make <laughs> sense of oil markets. Um, but the sort of just general understanding, Richard, of Biden is going to Saudi Arabia to ask them to pump more oil is actually factually incorrect. Maybe there's some stuff behind the scenes. But in addition to that, there really isn't a ton of spare ca capacity anyway. So very interesting. And we're doing a lot of stuff on the Biden visit coming up to Saudi Arabia. So I just thought this was worth looking at here. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good topic. And I, I uh, echo your um, comment that that Javier Blas piece is good, is really good. And it's very, um, you know, it's very comprehensive in its take. This is one of the nice things I, I, I you know, the, the trip, the Biden trip, you know, was rumored and it was rumored it was going to be uh, in June. 
on the back of a trip to Europe, uh, Germany at one of those stops. And this is one of the good things about it being postponed. You can sort of dig into some of this and manage expectations because the the, the thinking that Saudi Arabia is going to raise its production um, is is not realistic. Uh, they did a sort of nominal, you know, raised as you mentioned to six hundred thousand, but there's there's very very few reasons to do it. One, I think there's a real concern that there's already, you know, uh, uh, this this isn't the answer. More crude is not the answer. The, the bottleneck right now seems to be refining. Um, Saudi Arabia has been very cautious. The other thing is a couple other things. Number one, OPEC is already underproducing something like two and a half million barrels a day from from its members. I mean. Uh, Algeria, Nigeria, Angola, they're all having trouble hitting their targets. Um, you know, you're showing up in the middle of summer in Saudi Arabia where you've got your summer burn. They're using crude to, to deal with the tremendous draw on energy and the power, the, the, the pull on power for, for air conditioners and the like during the summer. It always spikes during the summer. Uh, on top of that, the IEA and, and a number of countries, you know, are drawing uh, million barrels a, uh, a day from their um, strategic oil reserves. So I, I don't, I, I think experts don't really feel like the, the oil availability is the, is the answer. Um, and as we also know, the Saudis have been very cautious and they, they see a, I think they see a recession coming. They see oil prices going down and, and they're also been very, very uh, careful and, um, with their relationship with Russia and OPEC plus. So all back to the original point, you can have this conversation because, you know, the, the trip was removed for a month. And so this was a great contribution by Javier Blas. Now the things that are getting, I think the things that are getting out of control are the issues of normalization with Israel. Now that's a separate issue, but, you know, I think as, as you know, the extra time there is let people sort of, uh, try and stoke this fire and, you know, something big is coming and that sort of thing. And I don't know that it is. I think something's coming as we've talked about. It's on the islands, Tehran and Sanofir, but, uh, you know, on the oil thing, uh, I think President Biden is smart to say, well, it's not why I'm going because it can't be why it's going because there, he'll be, he, he'll be on, he'll be unsatisfied. Yeah, set up for failure, basically, because there isn't a ton right. of capacity and Saudi's not going to do it anyway. Um, so, right. um, but it is interesting. That was sort of the popular view, though, is that he's going to Saudi Arabia to ask for more oil. And so just thought that was interesting. It, Richard, that visit is coming up in about two weeks from now. So it should be really interesting to watch. And the 966 will be having a very special episode for it just after it concludes. So just wanted to put that on everybody's calendar, which you yes. sir, have arranged and it's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll release some more details about that as we get closer to it. That'll be fun. This is all fun. It's all fun. Yeah, it's all good. We're just turning on the camera and talking. So I know. You know, whatever. If, um, if, if we're only that easy. <laughs> um, let's get to our interview now with Raghad Fatadin, just a really brilliant, talented young woman in Saudi Arabia. Um, you guys are going to love this. This is a really good one. Like I said, lucky us. Lucky us. Our guest today is the brilliant Raghad Fatadin. Raghad is a communications analyst for PepsiCo based in Riyadh, an entrepreneur and founder of Sangha ST Dama Hub. The list goes on. Raghad is a Y20 delegate, and we know she's wor been working hard on that. She's also a Win Fellow and recently spoke this week on a Kaust plus SYS panel. 
Bracca, thank you so much for joining us today. It's going to be great. Thank you. I'm very excited, honestly. I've been waiting to be <laughs> And your patience. Yes, you have been patient. This is, uh, we're so excited to have you too. I have to tell a story how we met, right? Met virtually, since yeah. everything's virtually. So uh, the MISC Foundation uh, did an online survey asking people to share their favorite podcast. And, and you, Raga, responded that yours was the 966, which was out of nowhere. And it was because it was relatively early. I mean, we're just six months into this. Wow. Um, needless to say, <laughs> I saw that. I knew I had to meet you in person. And then um, when that connection was made, we learned about all these fascinating things you're doing. Uh, so much so that when we're looking at today's episode, it's, it, it's really kind of hard to know where to begin. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's begin today with the Y20. And, and if, if I may, for our listeners and our viewers, gives a little background on this. I think it's worthwhile because it's, a, it's really a, a, an impressive enterprise, the G20 in general, but also all these engagement groups. But anyway, so this 2022 G20 Summit is upcoming in Indonesia this November. So again, recap for our listeners, the G20 is 19 countries plus the EU. It uh, comprises most of the world's largest economy, economies, counts for around 90% of gross world products, 70 to 75 to 80% of international trade, and two-thirds of the global population. So this is a this is a significant gathering, annual gathering. Um, what a lot of people don't know is part of the G20 process includes engagement groups, eight engagement groups which are independent from governments and comprised of various stakeholders uh, throughout the international community. And, and, and these engagement groups include the B20 for the business community, the C20, civil society, L20, labor unions, S20, scientists, T20, think tanks, U20 for urban cities, W20 for women, and Y20 for youth. Um, so these engagement groups meet throughout the year and they actually have their quote unquote summits in the run up to the G20 summit in November. Um, and in these summits, they report out their findings and recommendations. And uh, it's quite a detailed process, quite a, 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 a huge commitment in terms of if you're a delegate. So Rugged, you are now a Y20 Saudi delegate and you've been working very hard uh, with your global counterparts on this engagement group. And, and, and just last week, you had your, your final planning and prep meeting for the Y20 summit next month in Indonesia. Again, it's an important distinction. The G20 summit is in uh, November, but these engagement groups bring out their finding, and it's a big deal in the run-up to that. So your Y20 is next week in July. We would love to hear about this process and your involvement and the issues that the, the Y20 has focused on for this G20 summit in, in Indonesia. All right. Um, you've explained it very well as a concept, but more specifically on the Y20. So how did I get into the Y20? Um, just to kind of uh, give you a background information and, or an overview on the situation here in Saudi. As you know, with Saudi Vision 2030 and as the youth make 67% of the population, a lot of the efforts are put into the youth for them to be an active agent for change. So um, one of the programs Miss Global created was called Ignited Voices. This program trains um, 
individuals, participants, the youth of Saudi, um, to how to negotiate, write policies, um, communication, understanding your identity and your personality as well. Um, so it's really an in-depth kind of process building a global citizen and a leader. I have a question. I raised my hand. Yeah. For those for those listening, who is organizing and putting on this this uh, these pro this program? So MISC Foundation. MISC Foundation. All right. Yeah. So MISC um, Foundation. There is also something called MISC Global. So anything that is from local to the world. Miss Global kind of leads on that. So that's why this program is under Miss Global. It's called Ignited Voices. So I participated in this program last year after a few weeks of almost two months of the program. Um, you pitch a presentation, an idea, and then they select 10, um, you know, winners. But um, I'm not sure if I should say that. Um, and then they create this database of well-trained Saudi individuals who are passionate in different fields. So every time there is a summit globally or even locally, you would have representatives. So they're already experts. That's what they're passionate about. And they would like to kind of pursue this path. So this kind of program connects you to the global platforms and representing the youth of Saudi. So this year you have the Y20. So um, they reverted back to these 10 participants and they did interviews and they selected four based on the uh, priority areas the, the Indonesian presidency selected for this year. So the theme is uh, recovering together, recovering stronger. And there's different tracks for the Y20 or the G20. You have um, uh, the youth employment, um, digital uh, transformation, uh, inclusion, and my track, which is sustainable livable planet track. And what I love about this year is when we're looking at sustainability, the track itself, the wording is much more holistic and broad and not just looking at sustainability as a environmental crisis or issue, um, not just the climate change, but it's much more beyond that. So the conversation is getting wider and including other elements. So how can we come together as the youth and think of policies that would lead us to achieve a more sustainable and a livable planet? So um, that's what we've been working on. We had four on record sessions and uh, yeah. So four on the record sessions and 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 do you come in with the framework or do you create a framework as a part of these discussions that you're having with your counterparts yeah so the first proposal each delegate for each track from each delegation of the g20 countries would write their own proposal and you would submit it they would put all the proposals together in a document and then we have an on-record session where we start dividing ourselves into working groups. So now the working groups you have in terms of financial investment, green uh, investment, and yeah, green investment, um, um, global commons. We have a circular economy. We're looking into uh, so many others as well. But you get so, the idea. So sorry to sorry to help me understand the mechanism but i think it's interesting so you have so when you first get together on a y20 or any engagement group i presume it's sort of the same format for all engagement groups yeah. but but so you have you have 20 representatives yes and each track each team right and they they each propose a a topic or an issue that they want to see uh as a as a major theme is that correct 
Um, so it's not a topic as much as a policy proposal. All right. So and, and then there's a choice. Then there's then there's sort of a vote about which ones that are going to be selected and which ones move forward. Yeah, so they put all the proposals, everything they've received into a document, and then we have a word limit at the end that we need to reach, which is 100 words per working group. So that's really, you know, a challenge. How can we come together and yeah. really set our priorities under each working group? So there's, um, we had three on record sessions where we had to negotiate and reach consensus on the proposals, and we're still working on it. Um, by the end of this month, we should, you know, um, have reached at least consensus on, I would say, 80% of the communicate on the proposed uh, proposals. However, by July, we're meeting in Indonesia in person, and we're going to continue the process and finalize it. So it's really been a process of coming together off record as Y20 delegate, as the youth, and explain to each other why this policy should be uh, prioritized. Why should we remove this? How can we make it more con concise? How can we um, still make sure that the message is delivered? And we're really trying to think together on how we phrase things, how we structure the document and make the most out of you know, the, uh, the opportunity, but also the limitations that comes with it in terms of word limits, et cetera. Um, it's, been, um, it's been a really eye-opening process. Um, I did not expect, I came in into the Y20, yes, to kind of contribute to policy, but it was also an opportunity for me to see how do the future leaders of the world see themselves as leaders in the future. So as we come together, I was so curious to see how are we going to interact with one another? Um, what um, level of consciousness do we have an awareness and knowledge and skill set and what values do we you know agree upon because this really sets the ground and there's a lot of harmony so um i really enjoyed seeing the level of consensus between us and it wasn't based on where we come from as much as there's a common vision almost like sustainability the sdgs let's just work on achieving that and you feel the the responsibility they take in the process like we have this opportunity let's make the most out of it and it's just so wonderful to witness that and see it unfold so uh, a number of questions i want to get back to that that uh, sdg that you were that you were just talking about i do want to uh, i don't know if we mentioned this before but the very first episode very first interview that the 966 did was with Abdullah Hassan, who was the sous Sherpa of the and, and also director of policy for the G20 summit in Riyadh in yeah. December 2020, I believe. And one of the things that we talked about, uh, and one of the reasons we wanted to uh, uh, talk with Abdullah was because the G20 summit physically in and of itself, obviously in 2020, it was virtual, but the, 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 the actual execution of it is one thing. The legacy is another. Yeah. And and this is here we are, you know, close to two years later. And you and your many other Saudis, young Saudis are just immersed in this process, learning skills uh, that you wouldn't learn anywhere else. Um, and, and, and I just want to I just want to take a moment to recognize that this legacy continues and will grow. Um, another question about mechanism. So when you when you you're on the sustainable and livable planet planet track, that's you, right? You have four other Saudi counterparts. Are they also on this or do they go separate ways? So do they, do they pick other tracks, for example? 
Yeah, different tracks. So there's four tracks, there's four priorities. Each, de each delegation has the opportunity to invite four um, delegates. So you have the employment track, you have the inclusion, and you have the digital transformation, as well as the sustainable livable planet track. So each delegation has four delegates representing each track. The process is very similar. We join each session together. And um, so we are informed on all the policies being recommended on all tracks as a Y20 delegate. But when you work, you work with your track to kind of come up with the policies and finalize the communique. So can you give us a sneak preview of the policies that we're going to see in July? I can give you announced in July. <laughs> well, I can give you just a, a quick, what are we focusing on yeah. at the moment? Not specifically what's been written. Sure. Um, I mean, this would be a, this would be a major media scoop and I understand that has to be, yeah. you know, you have to be, you know, cautious. <laughs> Um, but at the same time, the process is very transparent. There isn't anything that we shouldn't or should share. You know, it's the more you share, the better in a way, because it's all about getting the youth voices represented. So it's really just trying to understand what do the youth of each delegation would like to see um, in the future and in, at, at this moment for us to live in a sustainable, livable planet. So I see a lot of attraction towards sustainable production and consumption. So circular economy and the circular mindset is really gaining momentum at the moment, um, pushing for sustainable options to be um, default option for consumers. There's a lot of burden on consumers to act right. Uh, they want to, but sometimes there isn't um, access or they can't afford it or um, it's just not available, it's not convenient. Um, so how can we reach a, a place where producers from ideation, design and implementation, they think with a circular mindset, they produce um, in a sustainable way. So us consumers, when we buy a product, we don't have to think about all the, you know, the hassle that comes with it and making sure that I am a, you know, a responsible and sustainable um, being. So how can I make it easy? How can I make it the norm for things, for consumption to be sustainable? Just as you pick anything, you know it is sustainable. How can we reach to that, that level of uh, circularity, sustainability? This is something that we really wanna see because awareness, so, yeah. So, sorry, so, so we talk a lot about the circular carbon economy here. And yeah. that, that obviously is something that is a priority with Saudi Arabia, you know, policy-wise, but that's, we're talking about carbon emissions there. Yeah. When you're talking about the circular economy and sustainability, what what exactly does that mean for, for my benefit? Yeah, of course. So at the moment, the way we produce um, or used to, I hope, is um, you would take resources, you would create a product. I would come buy the product, I'll use it. I don't want it anymore. I throw it into the landfill, it's waste. Circular economy says this shouldn't be the case, and we can actually benefit from all these wasted resources, not only for the planet, but also as producers and also as consumers. So for producers, let's say you want to produce something, what is the idea? 
you think of the idea and then you say, okay, how am I going to produce this? What are the most sustainable ways? What is the life cycle of this product? And how can I guarantee that this life cycle is sustainable? So you, even once you produce it, the manufacturing process, how can you guarantee that it is sustainable? The amount of water you use, the amount of electricity, the everything is processed and thought of. Until I come and buy this product, even if I, for, for, for instance, if it was a bottle of water, I used it, I've thrown the water, uh, water bottle. Once you collect it, you're excited to collect it. You thought of, of this process <laughs> because you understand that this is resource and how can you take it and put it back? So by doing so, you reduce the amount of virgin plastic being used and resources and costs. So it's, it's, a, it's a circular, it's a holistic, circular sure. um, process of produce it, production and consumption. Um, yeah. So let me ask you something. In your opinion, where does, what's the trigger for this? And I, and I understand it's ongoing. So it's a lot of the trigger is education, understanding and, 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 you know, making this information available to people, but is the trigger to the consumer? Is the contributor the can trigger the manufacturer? Is the contribute is a trigger uh, 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 regulatory bodies, governments that require this? In other words, as you know, obviously, you know, manufacturer a manufacturer of anything, those plastic bottles, uh, there needs to be a revenue and profit involved. And and part of I think what you're trying to do is is reorient everything to understand that these resources can actually be economically viable. Yeah. Yeah, so I think once you talk about circular economy, you're not just targeting, targeting industrial or uh, authoritative governance or just the general public. You, you cannot just co uh, communicate or ask some one entity or one player to, to, do, to contribute or get this job done. We all have a role to play, right? So uh -huh. if you have... It's, it's just how can we harmonize the effort? So let's say a producer wants to uh, adopt a circular um, attitude towards their production and consumers want sustainable products, but we cannot, um, we don't have access to them and producers have limitations. So how can this be attractive to them? Because sometimes you have to change, you know, your whole operation system at times and, um, this requires resources and invest, you, you know, it takes a lot of investment. Right. How can government makes incentivize this step, right. right? So we really need to create this ecosystem that is healthy and exciting for everyone to participate and take that risk because once we take it and it is achieved, it is gonna benefit everyone, right? Um, yes. Because a lot of the resources you're putting out today in different things is to, to mitigate the risk. So if we can create something that is efficient and scalable and sustainable, then the resources that you were wasting on mitigating the risk is no longer needed. Halas, you, you've dealt so with let me take, Yeah, let me take a left turn here because we're talking about the G20 summit, as I mentioned, comprises 90% uh, of the gross world product. So these are, these are uh, you know, for lack of a better term, these are high performing, relatively rich countries. But let's talk about how is on, on all those fronts that you just mentioned, how is Saudi Arabia doing? Um, on circular economy? Yeah. 
Yeah, there is a lot of investment and attention towards circular economy uh, from government, but also producers. So working at PepsiCo, I see the agenda. So you have the SDGs on a global level, we need to achieve sustainability. Saudi has this national framework to achieve that. And then of course, as international companies functioning in um, Saudi, you would have your own framework as well. And you see a lot of um, companies taking the initiative because they understand that this is the future. If you really wanna achieve so many of the SDGs, you'll need to take action. So you see them um, you know, sometimes going out of their way into collecting, making sure that they are participating in the collection process, which in reality, they, they don't really have to do that, right? But by doing so, you're supporting Saudi vision agenda as well, because mm -hmm. You're, you're bridging that gap, but you're starting something and you see the partners that are also aligned with you. So you attract them and you work together. So I love how things are working and happening here. Um, there's a lot of advocacy. Um, there's a lot of awareness raising at the moment. And there is also the, the understanding of uh, the importance of changing mindset. So education for the youth, because you cannot change production and then the consumer still act the way they do, or they don't change their behavior, understand, um, you know, they're, we want them to be conscious consumers and conscious beings, understanding the impact of every single thing that they do in this life, there's impact. So how can we um, raise awareness uh, in that regard? I think that's where we stand at the moment in terms of implementation on the ground. Uh, I wish I could help you here, but, um, I don't have many examples, but right. I feel like uh, more entities are forming to kind of uh, push this agenda forward. Well, Lucian, unless you have questions, I, that's, an, that's, a, that's a really good segue into PepsiCo, which I'm, I'm interested in talking with Rahad about. Did you, uh, you want to uh, add no, anything on the Y20? No, no, no. Um, on PepsiCo, and I have to admit, I, I feel a little pride here. And, and I, I may be out of line here, but, I, you know, pride because it's a U.S. corporation, which actually seems to be quite dedicated to uh, SDG issues and, and particularly women empowerment. But before so let me for the for our listeners. So so rather is is for PepsiCo uh, communication analysts, public policy, government affairs and co-op uh, cooperation, co cooperation, communication. Is that correct? Corporate communication. Corporate, I'm sorry. <laughs> so let me do this. Again. I'm gonna do it again, Lucian, so you can cut that out. Uh, Rudd is is a communication analyst, public policy, government affairs, and corporate communications with PepsiCo. Um, that's. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because as I said, I've been impressed with what PepsiCo seems to want to do in terms of the community. Yeah. So fun fact: Did you know that PepsiCo existed in Saudi for almost sixty years, if not more? It has been present in Saudi for 60 years. This is an so, international company that existed in Saudi. So it's it really grown with the culture, with you know the whole uh, social change, the vision 2030. It's going, you know, it's something that now we're looking at PepsiCo here in Saudi, and it's like someone with the two passports, right? You're Saudi and you're American. And you're proud of both, but at this time we're living in, 
there is a merge. The, the American and the Saudi is in harmony and has like a shared vision when it comes to sustainability. So um, there's a lot of excitement there because there's, there's harmony. So you, you're working on joint agendas everywhere to achieve a common um, you know, objective or uh, commitment you've, you've made in the past, which are the SDGs. Um, that is a fun fact. Fun fact, when I first lived in Saudi in the 80s, I knew this because all you get was PepsiCo, Pepsi because there was a secondary boycott on Coke. Wow. And, and so there were no Cokes uh, at the time. Yeah. And I think later the Oleon group brought in Coke and Coke is doing well, but Pepsi, Pepsi, yes, Pepsi is a mainstay in Saudi Arabia for 60 years. Uh, the CEO, Mr. Williamson, is, is really seems to be very, the, the PepsiCo positive approach, you know, sustainability and these things. I've also been really impressed with, um, with their women empowerment, women mentorship program. I guess it's called, is it called Tamakani? So yes, we have the uh, women empowerment platform called Tamakani, which is um, to be capable of doing something, to, to be empowered. Yeah, Tamakani. And um, Tamakani has three pillars, amplifying voices, so offering a platform for women to voice their stories, their narratives, their challenges, the opportunities, their stories, and all of that. Um, and there is the uh, fostering entrepreneurship and the mentorship pillar. So we have so many different programs under each pillar with different partners from Francis Nota University to the American Chamber, the Atlantic Council, um, uh, Family Affair Council, and Nahda and so many others. So um, yeah, the, there's a lot of focus when it comes to women empowerment um, in Saudi because that's part of the, you know, the sustainability agenda. And a lot of people don't understand how diverse sustainability is and the different elements that come to play. Um, how can we create an environment, an ecosystem that each and every single human being that is participating is active and can, can benefit, receive, but also give. So we need to get everyone involved and it's time to get everyone involved. So women empowerment is really needed in Saudi today. And it's happening so quickly because mm -hmm. they were so ready. It was happening in the past, but now it's just coming, coming to, to the surface and the opportunities are there. So it's just like the women were ready. They were, they were always ready. The country was always ready for that. Um, the nation. So um, it's just happening so smoothly. And um, I'm, I'm not surprised that companies, you know, part of their corporate social responsibilities to kind of um, participate in that, um, creating the change and fostering an environment that is uh, creating a positive change. We were talking before we started recording about Lucian, Lucian's a surfer, and we were talking about uh, giant waves off of Portugal. And, um, it seems like a giant wave for Saudi Arabia in terms of women coming into the into the uh, not only the the workspace but just uh, you know throughout society. And as you say, it's been building for some time. It's been there, but now it's crashing. It feels like. Um, uh, what exactly are you doing with uh, PepsiCo? So um, I'm a communication analyst. I lead the women empowerment. Um, 
platform تمكني and support with the SDG um, or the PepsiCo positive uh, agenda in terms of communication and um, impact. So um, that's uh, that's my role there at the moment. So you're right at the heart of all their SDG uh, outreach. Yeah, the um, Pep positive. Yeah. Positive agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's countrywide. Yeah. Interesting. So are you responsible? So do, uh, you're you're based in the Eastern Province, right? I'm in Riyadh. I'm based in Riyadh. Oh, you're in Riyadh. Oh. I'm the sustainability um, agenda. I'm supporting with the communication of the sustainability agenda in Saudi. Uh, we have a full-on team that focuses on more the, you know, the scientific um, part of sustainability, the partnerships that come with it. With it. But my role is more on the raising awareness and advocacy and um, really amplifying the work that is being done today. Um, I want to get to your foundation, uh, your Sangha Estadama hub. But before that, we have a, there's a, I want to, you not only were, you know, uh, uh, a winner, so as it were, uh, uh, selected in you know, the United Voices, and then you moved on from there to be part of Y20. You are so also were selected to be part of this Win Fellowship, which is, yeah, in in which is and 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 another connection. Uh, so uh, Amjad Ahmed, who was uh, with the Empower ME, which is Atlantic Council's initiative. This is and they're the ones who put together this Win Fellowship. Georgetown University, uh, School of Business, U.S. Embassy, Riyadh, and two of the supporters are UPS and PepsiCo. Yeah. Um, but this sounds like, so these are 30 women. Can you tell us about it? It sounds like a fascinating uh, initiative. Yeah, it's a fun story, honestly. So last year I was working on my startup for, you know, I took all of my time, I put it into my startup. It was just starting. So that's all I was doing last year. And then at the end, I saw this program, the WEN Fellowship, uh, so I applied to it because, you know, um, sponsored by PepsiCo, it was uh, um, having this, you know, Georgetown into play and all the information and guidance you could receive from that. So I was really excited about it. So I applied, but then right after I got this call from PepsiCo and that's how I got a job <laughs> work on PepsiCo. And to my surprise, I'll be in charge of all of the women empowerment. <laughs> So I'm kind of here working on, you know, all the programs, managing them, but also I'm part of the Win Fellowship program as a Saudi entrepreneur myself. Um, so I'm quite lucky that I could still participate and go through the process, which is really great. It's a very unique program. Um, there's a lot that you could receive from it. So you have um, courses um, to take you through how can you develop a sustainable, scalable business mod uh, model and you have mentors as well. So you pick two mentors of your choice from a list that they provide um, and you have sessions with them once or twice per month. Um, so it's really up to you what kind of knowledge, where's the gap in your journey and how can you um, bridge it? So sometimes it's the courses, but I've been into so many uh, accelerator programs in the past. So now what I'm benefiting the most out of this is the level of the mentors and mentorship that I could receive. Um, so I have a mentor from the US who is a lecturer in Georgetown, a professor. And I also have someone who's here in Riyadh, more local in, in the market. And that's exactly what I wanted because I 
do a lot of research. I want to lead with research with what I do and impact policies. But at the same time, I want to kind of make sure that Sangha is a product and a service that is positioned well in the market. So these two mentors are really helping me put that together. So I get lost in everything that I do from PepsiCo to the Y20 to the summit, but that's, <laughs> these are all different things that I'm collecting data, insight, uh, resources, perspective, where are we today? And then feed it into my startup and say, okay, today you're gonna, let me elevate you, you're here today. So I'm feeding into it. I've been away from the Saudi market for eight years. I've been living, studying abroad, working abroad. So coming back and having to start, um, you know, a company in a year without really understanding the market, you've been away. So I took this year to kind of really dive in and see what's happening and what can we do together. And, and it's shifting. It's constantly shifting and growing and adapting. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful. Is your local mentor female? Male. Male? But yeah. it was, we were talking about male Mozani prior to recording. <laughs> this is, we've always talked about this, Lucian. We leave so much great stuff on the cutting room floor because we it's before we start to record. <laughs> but we, you know, she again was a ghost, ghost a guest of the 966 and she has her nush uh half the women's empowerment foundation and and so much and she worked for 29 years at, at saudi at aramco and had a, a terrific career and is now doing this but her point and her her focus has always been on on mentorship with women young women because she didn't feel like she had that uh and it sounds like you're you're having different opportunities that you are being you are having these opportunities to be mentored and learn from mentors yeah, throughout the process, I've had mentors. So in the last year, I had so many different ones joining different programs. And with every program, you have, yes, the, the program itself, the curriculum, but there is a mentor there to support and guide you because it has to be personal to kind of tailor the, the, the journey for you, for your needs, for who you are as well. So that was really important. And it doesn't matter if they're a female or a male. It's more about do, do you align? And right. I think that's what a mentor is for. Do you align? Do you share a vision? Do you understand each other? How can you support each other? It's not only a mentor supporting a mentee. It's sometimes even you bring a fresh perspective into what they do and you just like move forward. Um, so that's how I see mentorship here today. So let's talk about what you were doing all last year, uh, starting your company. Can you tell us about your company? Yeah, so it's called Sangha Siddhamahab. Sangha means community in Sanskrit. And Sidama is the um, Arabic word for sustainability. Um, it, the concept started when I was in Paris um, working at UNESCO for two years. I, and then COVID hit and all of a sudden, um, you know, you're forced to kind of be uh, quarantined or, you know, uh, trapped with, with yourself, with your thoughts, with your emotions, with your whole life. And you're just reflecting upon it. Um, but then I realized that, you know, with all these things that we're living today, the, the state of the world today, why, 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 is, why are we living what we're living today? What caused this? You know, it's everything happens for a reason. And there was like an influence for it to kind of manifest in this way today. And I think just this reflection process of going inward, you, you get to realize that the state of the world is nothing but a reflection of the state of the citizens of the world. 
if you really want to treat something and heal something, you're not going to go to the symptom and give it medicine and say, shh, no, you're just putting it to sleep. It's still there. It's numbing. And that's not healthy. You go to the core issue and you heal that. You listen to that. You, you allow it. You give it time to tell you why it is the way it is and accept it. Accept our mistakes. Accept that we tried, but we failed sometimes. So, and heal that core. And the core is, to me, is us people. So we created this world and we've done an amazing job and it's all so new to us. We've never you know, done this before and we're trying to explore all the options and navigate our world. But how can we guarantee that as new generations come and grow and become leaders, they shape better systems that are fit for the human spirit. And if they're fit for the human spirit, I mean, it's healthy. It's the spirit itself that we don't really usually talk about. What does it truly mean to be human? So we continue to shape systems that are not fit for humans, nor do the planet, because nature as a whole, because they're part of nature too. And we tend to forget that there's a disconnect. So I think these are the small things that we usually don't look at, but they are part of the problem. They're part of why we live in such world, but they're ignored because they seem so simple. Like, no, the, the problem is so big. The solution must be a new technology that we should create to kind of deal with this. And sometimes yes, and sometimes no, it could be even simpler by ensuring that this human being is well enough that when they think of ideas, they consider themselves, the well-being of people and the planet. So you guarantee that even when we think for solutions, we're thinking of sustainable, healthy, well solutions. How are we meant to come up with new solutions for the issues we're facing when maybe we are not in the best state and mindset to come up with these solutions? So I created a program to make sure that we can praise well individuals that are active green citizens as well. And we call it Flourish Program. And I think the, the term that I thought was interesting in your mission it was uh, establishing or promoting a well-being economy. Yeah, uh, the broader picture. So how is it coming along? Is are you getting a good reception? Do you have support? Yeah, the, there's a lot of support. There's a lot of excitement. Yes. However, because I've created my product is a program. I need to deliver this program to the youth. But for you to sell something, there should be a need right? But the need is not coming from a market. The need is coming from us decision makers or policy makers and researchers together saying, we need to change things. Society is not thinking that we need to change things. We, there's still, the awareness is not fully yeah, there. So yeah, that's I, right. How can I trigger that need? How can I raise awareness? So I'm trying to do that at the moment to focus on raising awareness, but I don't have to do it myself, right? So I'm, now I'm navigating who, what other entities align or um, would like to start investing in awareness raising, advocacy and circularity because it's all interwined, right? Um, because if you're saying well-being economy is an economic system that puts people and the planet in the center of decision-making for governments when they think, for industries, for individuals, we all kind of think of the people and the planet and then decide and make your decision. So circularity is also a mean on achieving well-being economy. So right. as 
um, a manufacturer as a producer, that's how you think of the people on the planet. This is the economic system that you could put into play. So how can we create, so for public, I wanna insert the education system, the mindset, the perspective, the skills. So how you communicate with just society as a whole, how can you guarantee you have a healthy society that could add value in a way, in a level that we haven't received in the past. You have this vision, a global one and a local one, but how can we guarantee as we achieve this vision, we have conscious beings that you know could contribute in a way that we've never seen before. Let's make it exciting in a way to kind of achieve this and fulfill it. I, Lucian, I'm struck again uh, by the young Saudi professionals we've spoken with on the 966. And we look here at, at, at Rahad and, and, and you know, you, you've got your job. PepsiCo, and you're doing things you love there because, you know, STG related. You're involved with Y20, which is a global initiative and a global format, uh, global platform, and you've, got, and, and you've also started your own foundation or company. Um, when you look around at your cohort group, uh, your demographic youth, and not just women, but let's say in your, your age demographic, uh, and you consider how you look at the world, and you're talking here about circular economy, well-being economy. These, how you look at the world, are are you alone, or a lot of other young Saudis see it in a similar fashion? This is a very tricky question, Richard. I have to be very careful as I answer because I don't want to be biased. At the end, well, of and I don't, I don't, I don't want to catch you up in anything. That was a sincere no, question. I, I'm really interested. No, no, of course, I get it, and I, I say because. It's a really tricky question for me too, because here's the thing, you'll understand as I speak. So it is very natural that as a human being, you try to kind of create a community, right? You need a sense of belonging. So if, I, if you're asking me when I look around, what do I see? I really worked hard to make sure that the people I pick around me share that. Right. So you, you have a self-selected community. <laughs> I do, I do. I make very sure, I'm very careful, you know? I need that support system you know we think together we support each other in so many different ways they're artists they're in, into culture there's we do different things the way we participate the means the tools the way we get things done very different paths but at the end when we're sitting together as friends we see how we we you know why we're together it's not what we do it's more of this shared vision and perspective and mindset and consciousness. So yes, when I look around me, I see that a lot and I'm very happy that I could see that around, you know, here in Saudi as I moved because that was one of the things I was worried to, to kind of, will I have this community here? But I'm very surprised that yes, it exists. And I understand why. We, a lot of us were sent abroad for on scholarships. We've, you know, going abroad and living other cultures really does something, it reshapes you. It, um, it allows you to see things differently. And the amount of knowledge, the skills and the culture we've attained and now the resources are attracting us back to our home country to kind of the opportunities is telling us, yes, come and act, please. You know, it's like your playground. And we're so excited to play. There's a lot of excitement to kind of create and innovate. And there's the support system that allows you to do so, not only in resources, but they believe. There's a belief for someone in authority and decision-making level looks at you and they believe that you can do it. 
to empower you, to invest in you, of course, I'm going to see it all around me in my mm -hmm. circle. And I'm tapping. So when I went to the SYS uh, conference, I love talking to the to the audience the audience was amazing and that's not my circle right but it <laughs> became my circle there's this will and curiosity and um hunger to kind of just like absorb and learn and people are asking questions i love hearing people asking questions i used to crave to to hear people around me in this community asking questions so the fact that people are asking questions and they want to learn and get involved is is hopeful and that was a wonderful response to a tricky question. Yeah. That, that was really nice. Uh, uh, Lucian, uh, do you want to jump in here? Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit about the scholarship program? Just go back a little bit. So um, yeah. you studied in uh, England for both your bachelor's and master's. Can you tell us about, um, I guess, how you, how you got the scholarship, how you decided on England? Tell us about that journey. So here's the thing. Remember when we were talking about women empowerment and I told you women were ready from a long, you know, before Vision 2030, because during King Abdullah, Abdullah's time, the scholarship was, were open. And that's when I got my scholarship and even my siblings. So a lot of us went abroad and studied abroad. So um, it was more like I, my, my dad did his master's abroad and then all my siblings kind of went to study abroad. So it was my turn to kind of go and study abroad as well in a way. And I made sure that my dad made the promise this would be my path. I really wanted to kind of go and explore. So that was there. But then um, for me to get the scholarship, I had to get a really high GPA. So I, I set a whole plan and agenda of how can I make sure that Ragat is gonna go and study abroad. And I was so frustrated. Back at the time I was a teenager, I was so frustrated. Ya Allah, I was so frustrated at everything. <laughs> I was complaining all the time until I had enough of myself. And I promised myself, you're not gonna complain until you do something about it. Enough, enough complaining, do something. Why don't they do this? Why don't they change this? Why this is the way it is? But participate, do something, change it. And it just clicked to me, change it, do something about it. So I, I went through an agency that helps you apply to universities abroad. And um, we were talking and everything. So what do you wanna study? I wanted to study politics. And you know that's what I wanted or philosophy or something. Um, because I wanted to change the education system because I did not agree with the fact that I had to pick one thing and study for and be an expert. And I, I felt like I was so much bigger to just pick one thing and all the, you know, the inspire, inspirational figures we've learned about it's so many different things. And now you're asking me to just pick one thing that really upset me as a teenager. Like I want to do more. So I decided that in order for me to change, maybe I need to understand the system first. So politics, understand the system makes sense. And I wanted to pursue that. But then the agency told me, you know what, just pick entrepreneurship, you can still change things and this, you will have a future and, you know, it's much more stable and, you know, do you come back, you get a job. Um, so I was like, okay, fine. I applied. I wanted to study in the US, but I'm telling you the whole story. <laughs> That's what we want. <laughs> but there's a point there. There's a reason why. So there's a message there. Wait and see. Um, 
So I, um, my father was reluctant. He was so scared that I would go abroad alone and all of that. So he said, let's compromise. You're going to study abroad, but go to the UK. It's closer so I can come much faster than, you know, going to the US. I agreed. So that's how I kind of went to South, you know, the UK. So I did my undergrad in Southampton, but in my foundation year, I had to write a, you know, a short dissertation and all the topics I picked were philosophical and political. So my supervisor back then told me, why did you apply? You know, is that what you want to do? Entrepreneurship? I was like, not really. I want to do politics because it can change. So I did. And I went through it. I graduated and I did my master's in London, King's College in public policy. So I thought, okay, I understand how the system works, but now how can I change it? Public policy, let's figure it out. But at the same time, if I'm being completely honest with you, I was buying myself time. I knew that I still wanted to kind of live abroad I need to see more here I need to I want to be I still haven't had enough from this experience being abroad and I wanted to work abroad I wanted to get experience there but I've quickly understood that I need to be so unique for them to recruit me and not someone who's you know local um so I made sure to kind of get almost three jobs and doing my master's <laughs> we're gonna do this <laughs> cv so I, I really worked on it a lot and i understood what kind of experiences were needed and, and you know i i worked really hard i tried my best um and as soon as i finished and you know summer was there and i was just like am i gonna go back am i not i received this my friend sent me a broadcast on whatsapp the amisk foundation is sending has this program and sending um, the youth to UNESCO for an internship or something. So I applied and I got accepted and all of a sudden I find myself there. But it reminds me of that moment when I was told I was applying for, you know, uh, what major would I pick? And they told me that you have no future in politics at Saudi. Just pick social enterprise. You can still do good. But there's a reason why you have this calling and desire because as soon as I finished my master's, they were looking for youth to represent the kingdom and who actually studied that they measured in that <laughs> so really, you know, don't pick your choices today based on just what opportunities are valid in front of you today but there's actually time until you can for things to change predict you know there's there's ways to look forward there's every sure. single person can contribute and look forward in a specific way so um did I answer your question? I just like <laughs> that was <laughs> awesome. I think, <laughs> I think, I think, I think uh, right, this mantra mantra should be, I applied and I got accepted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this <laughs> no, this has been awesome, um, and and extraordinary. I, I mean, I I, 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 this has been really a lot of fun, and. And I, I think we've learned, and our listeners, I hope, and viewers listen, should have learned a lot about you. And it's exciting. And I'm excited for you, not only for the PepsiCo, not only for the Y20 or your 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 company, but my goodness, you're bringing so much dynamism and thinking and and uh, and just awareness to uh, Saudi Arabia and the world. I'm I'm really impressed. Raghad Fatadeen, communications analyst for PepsiCo based in Riyadh, entrepreneur, founder of Sangha ST Dama Hub. Raghad, thank you so much for your time. This was such a great discussion. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
it was wonderful. We'll, we'll do it again. I want to hear, I want to hear how your visit uh, to Indonesia goes and how they, you know, that your Y20 recommendations, how they, how they go and what's next for you. Cause like I said, I'm quite certain you will apply and be accepted. <laughs> <laughs> that was our interview with Raghad Fatadin. A reminder, subscribe to this wherever you're getting it. YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Hit us up there. Um, comments in the YouTube section. Again, reminding everybody, please be civil um, to each other. And that's all we ask. <laughs> Otherwise, we love hearing your feedback. So, Richard, what do you think? Let's get to Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. I got to get mine deeper and cleaner. <laughs> Number one, Saudi XM Bank offered over 50% of its $450 million in loans to SMEs in 2021. Uh, the Saudi Export-Import Bank, known as Saudi XM, approved loans worth $400 million in 2021 with 51% of the total financing given to small and medium enterprises, according to the bank's CEO, Saad Al-Khab. Uh, the bank also reported a total revenue of $10.52 million in 2021, citing its annual report, Argum, reported that this financing helped Saudi projects reach more than 50 countries, including India, Germany, China, the U.S., and Indonesia. Yeah, this is very interesting. The SME, like getting money to SMEs is huge. I thought that was really cool in this article, too. Um, Al Kalb noted that the bank also issued guarantees, import financing, international supply chain, structural financing for international projects, um, and revealed that the bank also launched an insurance protection plan for Saudi exporters who face risks of non-payment by international buyers. Uh, this is this is all good. I mean, this is the unsexy part of Vision 2030 that is, you know, showing itself to be producing bearing fruits, as we discussed earlier, Richard. So this is this is very good. Yeah, it, it is good news. And I just added to this and in, in, in the details, I guess uh, non-oil exports increased 27.5 percent last year to 6.4 billion compared to uh, 5.3 billion in, in um, the previous uh year uh yeah you know trade is what they you know especially non-oil and this is something they really want to see moving out more details 24.5 percent of the loans were issued to food products hmm. followed by iron and steel rubber and plastics and then uh and then so that was the primary ones very interesting um, yellow number two, Richard, Saudi Arabia ends its embargo on Turkish exports after the visit of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to Turkey. Saudi Arabia has lifted its unofficial embargo against Turkish exports, Dr. Majid Al-Kasabi told a group of Turkish and Saudi businessmen in Ankara. Saudi Arabia has been imposing a silent embargo on Turkish goods since 2018. As a result, Turkish exports saw a sharp drop of nearly 92 percent up to 2021. Neil Olpak, the chairman of the Foreign Economic Relations Board of Turkey, said at the event on Thursday that they were aiming to increase the bilateral bilateral trade, excuse me, to 10 billion next year from 4 billion in 2020. Dr. Majid called for a fresh start between the Saudi and Turkish business people. Very interesting, Richard, how much difference a little bit of time and a visit by yeah. Crown Prince Mohammed bin <laughs> Salman can make. Good things are breaking out all over the the, the region. I mean, uh, the Gadari uh, Amir was in Egypt just recently, trying you know, sort of confirming the end of that rift. <clears throat> Turkey and Saudi Arabia, I mean, not only politically trying to get less confrontational, which they are doing as part of it, but trade-wise, these are by far the two largest economies in the region. 
by far. It doesn't serve anybody's purpose for them to be, um, you know, instituting tariffs or denying trade or or inhibiting investment. Uh, so this is this is a good step. And again, in keeping with good things going on throughout the region, non-Iran based, uh, and even Iran and Saudi Arabia have talked a little bit. Now, obviously, but but you know the Gulf states and it's you know Egypt, Turkey, key relationships, Jordan, everyone's getting. Uh, deconflicted and a little more pulling in the same direction, uh, and it's a it's a good thing. Um, number three, and this is all me. Don't blame this on Lucian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Dakar Rally returns to Saudi Arabia for 2023 with a longer course, according to the Timeout Riyadh. A 45th edition of the rally will be the fourth one to take place in Saudi Arabia. The Dakar Rally 2023 will start on Saturday, December 31 and run until Sunday, January 15th, 2023. The rally will follow a new route that drivers will complete in 14 stages. Now, I just, again, I, I was so excited when this was announced and it's coming back and it's going to be, it's going to be bigger and better than ever. And I just love it because it, you know, number one, I'd love to do it. Who wouldn't want to go and go crashing about in the dunes and off-road? But the visuals, I just think, are spectacular. It's like a modern-day Mad Max. It, it's so cool. It's also one of those things that is so cool from afar because I could never do it myself. I mean, in a car that much. <laughs> I'm, I'm not good on long road trips anyway. But um, it, it, And this event does have a ton of history. It's really cool. Um, just adding some info to it, the rally will begin along the shores of the Red Sea, and the action will end in Saudi Arabia's eastern province in Dammam, January 15th. Along the way, the Dakar rally will... 2023 will cover many incredible parts of the kingdom, including the Rub al Khali. Um, other changes include bikers being handed digital road books, and there will be no neutral sections for com competitors in T1 and T2. And then this article says translation, each stage will run continuously without breaks. Um, this is, and as you said, Richard, the photos and the videos that emerge from this are so rad. <laughs> um, and can't wait for that. This is, um, this is really cool. This is the fourth year now in Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. Right. 45th. Uh -huh. Yeah. Very cool. Richard, are you going to be entering this year? Are you going to do a bike or are you going to um, have a hydrogen powered truck? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, you got to go into training for this because you get beat. The, oh, oh my goodness. Uh, but no, but the, the, you know, there's be, uh, there'll be, I love it. Cause there's an E there's an E section. I mean, there's an E group bikes there's uh non-aligned groups or people who don't have a, a team behind them but they're just sort of uh, and i forget what the name is but you know just sort of independently showing up there'll be a lot of women participating saudi women it just gets better every year if this this year is longer it'll be bigger you know so and like i said it'll just look more insane and i just can't wait <laughs> i think we should stay for yellow number four with the with the theme of racing McLaren Racing has announced a long-term partnership with its electric division with Neom, the city project funded by Saudi Arabia's PIF that has already broken ground. McLaren will make its debut in Formula E later this year after announcing in May that it had purchased Mercedes's entry, having previously announced plans to race in the Extreme E from 2022. McLaren's teams will be known as Neom McLaren Formula E Team and Neom McLaren, Neom McLaren Extreme E. There's a lot of vowels in that, as well as our as well as operating under the combined banner of Neon McLaren Electric Racing. That's cool. I like this. You know that extreme that extreme E team. You know one of those will be racing in the in the 
probably be racing in the Dakar Rally. Remember last mm. year we had that e-truck, whatever it was. No, the, the hydrogen yeah, the truck. hydrogen truck. Yeah, that thing yeah. was awesome. That thing um, was really cool. I like this story because it sort of wraps up. Remember we did the sports washing uh, segment and we talked about three aspects of it. I think a public relations aspect, an investment aspect, and then a participation participation aspect. And this actually includes all three. So, so uh, the PIF uh, bought into McLaren a year ago in July, 550 pound, 50 million pound investment into McLaren. So they're a, a, a you know, a big part of that team. Um, you know, they're going to race, obviously there's a PR, but you know, they put their name on it and they're going to race, but now they're going to race obviously back in Neom. Neom has had, had, had an E1 uh, event last year. Uh, McLaren is actually going to be one of the first tenants in Oxagon, which is at Neom, you know, the industrial city floating mm. and they'll have, they'll have 12 employees based there. Um, and, uh, you know, it just sort of all wraps up. I mean, Saudi Arabia has a big profile in terms of, of the F1s, both because they have the Jetta F1 Grand Prix, they have the Doria E-Prix, um, and Aramco is, uh, I think, up to the tune of $650 million, I think, uh, partner of Formula One, and they're also a partner with Aston Martin Formula One. So anyway, uh, all intertwined, as you say, automotive, uh, and even more interesting because it's electric. So this is not fossil fuels. This is it's kind of fun. Very cool. Number five. Five. Number yeah. five. They're kind of going quick today. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's good. Uh, Saudi Arabia's refining capacity rose 13.7% in 2021, one of the biggest increases among its peers, as the world's largest exporter of crude continues to expand its downstream capabilities, according to the latest OPEC annual statistical bulletin. The OPEC Plus uh, country added 400,000 barrels a day of refining capacity in 2021, raising its overall capacity to refine crude to 3.327 million barrels a day. The increase was largely due to the addition of that Jizan finery, 400,000 barrels a day in the country's Red Sea facing Western coast. Yeah, we talked a bit about oil earlier and, and how production there isn't a lot of space to really expand production, but what is really needed now is refining capabilities, not just in Saudi Arabia, but around the world. So this is good. And this is definitely a, an eye forward for the kingdom. Um, meanwhile, it was reported this week that Saudi Arabia is importing some um, oil products from Egypt, as it always does. And Richard, you mentioned this earlier during the summer sort of power surge. And a lot of that refined oil is coming from Russia, or is at least suspected of coming from Russia. Um, but they don't have an embargo against Russia right now, of course. So um, very good for Saudi to be investing in this space and to see refining capacity rise um, last year. Yeah, <clears throat> that fuel oil, they're also importing it from Estonia. And that's that's Aramco trading. And, and actually, mm -hmm. they make a good business. And that's smart. That's where discounted oil is. If you can import it, import it. So they're bringing it in. Like you say, it's not all Russian oil, but because no, yeah. Egypt, but you're right. It's a significant amounts. And um, as we mentioned in your one big thing, crude production doesn't seem to be the problem. Refining seems to be the problem. And uh, you know, global refining capacity is somewhere around 82, 83 million barrels a day. And uh, you know, over 3 million barrels a day of refining capacity was lost 
at the pandemic. So at the start of 2020, not, not all of it has come back. Significant, you know, amounts of that have not come back. Um, Saudi Arabia is not going to make a dent in that right now. I mean, Saudi Arabia wants to get to eight to 10 million barrels a day by 2030 in terms of refining capacity. That would be significant. And that would include projects in China and India. Um, but yes, uh, refining capacity is the issue right now. And uh, Saudi Arabia is expanding its own. It doesn't really help the global right now, um, but it's making progress at home. Yella number six, Richard, we were lightning fast today with this, yes. um, which is good. Um, Saudi Arabia's population has decreased by at least 2.6% over the past two years due to the significant amount of expatriate workers who left the kingdom throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. In a report published today by the Kingdom's General Authority for Statistics, it stated that the country's population in the middle of last year was 34.1 million, down from 35 million in the middle of 2020. Um, this is interesting. Um, it's more than just the pandemic, though, right? It's also just focusing on getting Saudis into positions, um, Nitakat, essentially, right? Um, yeah, yeah. There's significant number, significant numbers of the Saudi, you know, the se sectors that are now you know, uh, require Saudi personnel and employees. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the, that first few months of the pandemic alone, as you say, uh, like 1.2 million expats were reported to have left Saudi Arabia, many of those from India and Pakistan. Um, interestingly enough, the pandemic sort of jump-started two things that Saudi Arabia wants to, at least two things, wants to accomplish. And one is is reducing its expatriate, expat foreign labor population, replacing, you know, those jobs increasingly with Saudis. And two, the uh, digitization of payments and, and, you know, going more to a cashless society because both of those, you know, that just exploded during the pandemic. So some good things can come out of a pandemic, but um, and this was interesting, and and we're going to find out uh, the Saudi census uh, is going to be announced this October. I think uh, uh, you know starting in October, it'll be it's ongoing now. The census takers are out doing their business and and trying to get an understanding of things. But this will be the first census since 2010, and it'll be interesting to get the real numbers. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not that these aren't real numbers, but uh, more up to date, uh, you know, numbers that have been gathered either electronically or, you know, face to face. Yeah, man, 1.2 million expats left Saudi Arabia by mid 2020, the first few months of the pandemic. That's a huge exodus um, right at the start of the pandemic. That's uh, that's wild. It's hard to wrap your head around, but uh, pandemic has changed a lot. Um so that's this is a this is a this is an interesting one, Richard. You put in this is very interesting. So yeah, you're right. The 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 census will be very closely watched, at least by the team of researchers here for the nine six six, because it's really cool. Um, Richard, great efficient episode, awesome conversation today with Raghav. Wow. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, Saudi in a minute, almost. We never almost quite got it in a minute, minute yeah. but, but that was <laughs> that was the closest to a minute we've ever gotten.
That that is that is we are getting we're getting very efficient with this. Um, uh, at least at least this one. You know, don't don't hold us to it. Yeah, don't hold us to it. Sometimes we want to get long winded. Sometimes we're quick. I mean, you would almost think that the live golf was teeing off in about an hour and a half from uh, Oregon. <laughs> we almost made it, folks. We were that close. <laughs> Just a coincidence. Um, Just that close to getting through an episode with no golf. <laughs> well, you know, I had to work it in. We were yeah, at the fiftieth. Exactly. We just got to keep it going at this point. So, <laughs> Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian. Excellent.